1: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
0: It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts.
1: Happy Father's Day, everybody. The New York Mets uh, found a way to ruin it. They found a way to tell all the fathers who are Mets fans, go F yourself. And that's exactly what happened over the last two days because after winning a nice, tidy Friday night win where Tyler McGill is looking good and Brett Beatty's picking up Francisco Lindor with a big hit, and Josh Walker looks like, hey, this guy could be a big piece of the bullpen future. And maybe, just maybe, the Mets are going to be able to do some damage against a reeling Cardinals team. They put up an L on Saturday. They put up an L on Sunday, and both unique in just finding ways to lose. And that's what this team does. They find ways to lose. You go back to Saturday's game, a game that, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I didn't get to see a lot of. It was the day of our big Carton-Roberts, Tiki, and Tyranny softball game. And I knew there was no chance to DVR it, by the way, because the Met game was at four. Our softball game was at six. I don't think there was any shot. I was going to be able to play a game on Staten Island with the crowd taunting us and not know how the Mets did. In fact, I had the Met game on in the Carton Roberts dugout, and I got distracted. When they announced my name to run on the field, Jeff McNeil had just hit that bullet up the middle right at Balday Young at shortstop, and it was gobbled up for an easy out when they had first and third down by a run. And so I was all disheveled. So thank you, Mets. Thank you, Jeff McNeil. But that was a game that I admit. I was not watching every pitch of, but you look at Sunday's game, the Father's Day game, find ways to lose, fall behind early, come back, fall behind by more, come back, fall behind by a little bit more, come back until finally Nolan Arenado puts it away in the ninth inning. It was just a a cavalcade of new ways to lose, and that's what this team has done. So here's a couple of broad things, and then we'll get specific about these games and obviously look ahead and everything around this team. Here's the broad issue. They are 33 and 38. They are five games under 500. They have now played 71 games. We are a couple of weeks away from that halfway point. They are showing no signs of getting hot. They are showing no signs of that run that every team has. You know, we always go back and look at last year's Phillies, the 2019 Nationals. You find these teams that struggled early and turned it around. Well, I got news newsflash for you. And I'll use those two teams as an example because they're recent examples, they're division rivals, and it's what the most optimistic Met fan wants to hold their hat on. The Philadelphia Phillies had turned their season around by game 71. They had. They were above 500 by game 71. The Nationals, believe it or not, had the same record as the Mets, 33-38 and in 2019, but their turnaround was occurring. Because remember, the Nationals created an even bigger hole in 2019. I think they were 19 and 30 at one point. So their turnaround was happening. The Phillies' turnaround was happening. We are 71 games into this season, and I ask a very simple question to maybe 2% of the audience, those in the Rico Brogna audience, that still holds out hope, that remains, I don't even know if I'd use the word confident, but I guess thinks that this thing can turn. When like, when is that going to happen? We are 71 games into the year and every day they're creating a bigger and bigger hole a because they're losing. And then B you've got teams in the national league, specifically the Miami Marlins, the Cincinnati reds and the San Francisco giants. Those are the three teams that will certainly jump out at me. They've been playing kick-ass baseball. I mean, the Reds have won eight in a row. The Giants have won seven in a row. The Marlins have won. I know it's only like a four or five game winning streak, but they are 10 games above 500. The Phillies have gotten hot. They've won six in a row. So not only are the Mets sucking, but we are watching other teams in the National League create more space between them and the Mets. The Mets are closer to having the worst record in the National League than they are being a playoff team. And that's just the cold, hard reality of the math. Because I think for a long time, when talking about this team and the struggles, I've always said, don't worry about the math. Don't worry about how many games back they are because they get hot, they'll be fine. Well, they better get real hot. The division, forget about it. I mean, I, I don't even think we should waste our time anymore. They're 12 and a half games out. 12 and a half games out. So the divisional race in the middle of June is dead. And over the last couple of days and weeks, the wild card race has become more daunting. So that's your big picture look at where this team is. And that's besides the fact that they're about to face a tough, tough part of their schedule. The Houston Astros, the Philadelphia Phillies. Like, this ain't easy. Now, it doesn't matter when they play bad teams because they have been set up on this homestand to play two teams that, for different reasons, were very beatable. You play two games against the Yankees, forget about their name, forget about their history, forget about them being blood rivals from a city perspective. They're a bad team right now, and we're not going to spend time worrying about the Yankees. We'll do that on the fan, but the Yankees are a mess, and in a weird way, the Mets split against the Yankees looks even worse when you watch what happened to the Yankees in Boston. They can't can't score a goddamn run. Max Scherzer looks even worse because the only guy the Yankees could hit for the last two weeks, it seems, is Max Scherzer. So you're set up with two games against a reeling Yankee team, a beatable Yankee team, and you settle for a split. Now, granted, both games could have gone either way. Who cares? You got a split. Now you take on this mess of a cardinal team and granted as you know and as you saw over the weekend the cardinals have talent in their lineup there's no doubt we all know how good paul goldschmidt is and nolan arenado is but this is a cardinal team that comes in having one of the worst years they've had in a long time and they're a mess they're a mess they've had dysfunctional issues since day one whether it was the Contreras situation or Ali marmel who seems like he's in over his head the St. Louis Cardinals come in as a mess. And on Friday night, the Mets did a great job of just continuing to pick on a lousy Cardinal team. They beat Miles Mikolas around a little bit. Tyler McGill throws one of the best games of the season. And we actually got to enjoy something very rare. A comfortable, neat, and tidy, solid Met victory. We all felt good. And then you watch what happened over the last two days. And it's like, are you freaking kid, You're playing the Cardinals. You're playing a lousy, downtrodden team. And you gave them life. Now, let me get to Sunday. I was stupid enough to take my oldest son, Jet, to this game. Happy Father's Day to me. Happy Father's Day to all of us. And obviously, Carlos Carrasco sucks. Let me start with him. Carlos Carrasco has now made nine starts. Nine starts. He had the handful of starts before he went on the injured list and the handful of starts now. And there's been some promise. He's now put together three mediocre starts in a row, and I'm being nice because this start on Sunday was not mediocre. Three innings, six runs is not mediocre. It sucks. It blows. But his two starts before that, the game in Pittsburgh, when he gets knocked out in the fifth inning, only gave up two runs. I wouldn't call it a bad start. I would say it was a mediocre start. You look at the start before that five innings, four runs, mediocre start. And that followed two really good starts in a row. So Carrasco gave us that tease of, okay, he's healthy. The velocity's up a little bit. Carrasco's turning this thing around. When you look at what he did Sunday, here are the numbers, and the numbers are just, they're they're ruthless. He has a 6.34 ERA. 6.34. So here's the question that Buck Showalter and Billy Epler are going to have to face pretty soon with Carlos Cookie Carrasco. How much longer do you run him out every five days before you say, let's try something else? And if your retort while listening is, what else is there, Evan? You actually have a few emerging options. Number one, Jose Quintana's on his way back. Number two, Tyler McGill showed a pulse on Friday night, so maybe his rotation spot isn't dead in the water. And number three, your boy, Pete, Joey Lucchese, has been pitching very well at AAA. And and here's the bottom line, not that I have confidence in Joey Lucchese. I'm getting sick and tired of looking at a a 6.5 ERA. I'm getting sick and tired of what I saw on Sunday. Carrasco gives up a home run early to Nolan Arenado. Okay, typical cookie Carrasco, gives up a home run in the first inning. Not the end of the world, especially when the Mets get one right back when Papa Lindor hits that bomb of a home run in the bottom of the first inning. But in the second inning, he gives it all right back. Now, a big part of this was Eduardo Escobar making just an absolutely brutal error. There's one out of nobody on. There's a ground ball to third base. And Escobar makes a offline throw to the returning Pete Alonso. And we'll get to Pete in a second because that was awesome. Not his performance, but him coming back was awesome. And if you're Carlos Carrasco, you're a veteran pitcher, yeah, it sucks. It's it's terrible. Eduardo Escobar made a bad error. Can you find a way to not walk the ninth-place hitter, Tommy Yedman? Can you do that? Can you find a way to not give up an RBI single to Brendan Donovan? Can you find a way, when you're ahead of Paul Goldschmidt, one and two, to not leave one hanging for him to rip a bases-clearing double? Can you find a way to not have that happen? Because Carrasco did. And so from two to one, hey, we're in the game, to five to one. Buck Showalter will tell you, our guys showed a lot of fight. And guess what? They did. I give him that. Two outs, nobody on. Second inning down, five to one. You get a Jeff McNeil hit by pitch. You get an Escobar triple, which was really a gift because Tommy Edmond needs to make that catch. You get a walk by Canna. You get a huge double by Brandon Immo. It was great. They got right back in the game. Five-four, they showed fight. And you know what Cookie did? Know what Cookie did in the third inning? Paul Young. Happy Father's Day to Paul Young, because he's our freaking daddy. Hits a bomb of a home run. Immediately, Carrasco gives one right back. And this is what killed me about this performance. There are bad performances where at least you keep your team in the game. I'll give you a great example. Kodai Seng on Saturday. That's a great example of it. Kodai Senga did not pitch great. I'm not going to convince you he did. He gave up a couple of home runs, including one to Paul Goldschmidt, and he turned a one nothing lead into a 4-1 deficit. I own it. I admit it. But guess what Senga did? He kept the Mets in the game. He pitched the fifth. He pitched the sixth. Guy even came out for the seventh inning. And other than the Guillaume home run, Met offense couldn't take advantage of it, and that's a part of why the Mets are such a bad team. I mean, on a day in which Senga settles in and keeps him in the game, they just don't get enough from their offense. On Sunday, the Mets got plenty from their offense. Their offense kept fighting back. Every time Carrasco kicked him in the nuts, which he did in the first inning, in the second inning, in the third inning, and then finally Buck said, you know what? I'm going to take his ass out the game. Thank you. It took him long enough. When he walks Tommy Edmond to start the fourth inning, Buck Showalter realizes, like, they, like, there's a light from the gods. Maybe I should take this guy out of the game. He's pitching like crap. And he finally did. Otherwise, it was going to get worse. But, Dad, I'm going to keep coming back to this as we go through these games. This is why they're a bad team. They're a bad team because when certain things go just right, enough things go wrong. So Carrasco comes out of this game because Buck Showalter realizes I have to get him out of this game. And the Met bullpen, for the most part, does a really good job. Like John Curtis did a really good job getting out of the fourth inning. A part of it, his own trouble. There was first and third nobody out with two, three, four coming up. He gets a huge little pop-up of Goldschmidt and a double play of Nolan Arenado. I thought the game was ending right there. I thought the Cardinals were going to blow this thing open in the fourth inning. But to John Curtis's credit, He gets to the fourth inning. He does give up a home run to Jordan Walker on a ball I still can't believe got out. Looked like a fly ball to right field. I thought Marte was going to track it down. But again, the Met offense response. Tommy Pham behind in the count. Hits the two-run home run to tie the game. And then Curtis and Leon, who got a huge out of Nolan Arenado with a couple of guys on base. Brooks Raley all do a great job keeping the Mets in the game as they fail to bust through. Because think about this. They come back, tie the game on the fam home run in the sixth inning. They're set up 2 on one out top of the order. Didn't get it done. Brandon Nimmo grounded out. Starling Marte struck out. I thought Starling Marte had a step-back game. He had been hitting well over the last few days. Sunday was an 0-5 disaster, which included the exclamation point, the double play to end the game. But then we get to the eighth inning, where I have to admit, I am still confused. Because in the eighth inning of this game, I see David Robertson coming out of the bullpen. And as I have said many, many times, I love the fact that Buck is not committed to this is your inning and this is your inning. He plays the matchups. And a lot of times I like how he plays the matchups. He may say, hey, hard are the orders coming up in the eighth? Let me go to my best reliever. We all agree, because it's not close, that the Mets best reliever is David Robertson. One could argue he's their only good reliever. You could make that argument. So when David Robertson started trotting out in the eighth inning, I, I glanced down at my scorecard because without even thinking, I assumed must be the heart of the order coming up. It must be. And I looked down at my scorecard, and I see 8, 9, and 1. I see Andrew Kisner, the backup catcher. I see Tommy Edmond, who the Mets were afraid to face today, walk three times on Sunday, and then I see the top of the order. And I'm confused. Other than maybe Robertson's going to pitch two innings, Buck realizes the importance of this game. They've had off days. Robertson hasn't had a pitch a lot recently. Okay, makes sense. David Robertson is coming in to pitch two innings. So David Robertson comes in. And, I mean, barely breaks a sweat. I think he threw eight or nine pitches. Very quickly, nice and tidy, one, two, three inning. Mets can't score in the bottom of the eighth. We go to the ninth with Goldschmidt, Arenado, Gorman, and Walker coming up to the plate. And Adam Adovino is walking out. Now, now my head is spinning. Okay. So David Robertson was not pitching two innings because if he was pitching two innings, he would have pitched the second inning. There was nothing that happened in inning number one that would have made Buck Showalter change his mind. It's not like he threw 27 pitches. He threw eight or nine, whatever the hell the number was. So he decides to go to Adovino because, hey, he likes the matchups. Why wouldn't he want Adam Adovino against right hand hitting Paul Goldschmidt and right hand hitting Nolan Arenado? I'm going to make this very effing simple. Okay, well... I don't care about Adovino's splits this year. He's actually been better against lefties than righties. I think we'd all agree Adoban Adovino's best lane, as Boone would say, is against right-hand hitters. 100% I agree with that. Even though, up until this point, every home run he had given up has been to a lefty. So even though the splits were overall good against lefties, he gave up a lot of home runs against lefties. So I get, if this is strictly righty-lefty, why you view Adovino facing right-hand hitters as a plus. I totally get that. What I don't get is my best reliever, David Robertson, who's great against lefties, but he's gotten right. He's out too. Right now, I trust Robertson over anybody. And in the career numbers of Arenado and Goldschmidt against Robertson, because I did look it up, very light, two for 10. No home runs from either guy. Okay, so nothing, they're not two for 30, but they're not five for 10. So there's no indication that Robertson is a bad matchup for the Cardinals' two best hitters. I want my best pitcher facing them. It cannot be any more simple than that. And that's my argument. No analytics, no splits. I'm telling you, period. I want my best pitcher facing their best hitters because I've seen Adam Adovino give up backbreaking home runs this year. I've seen Adam Adovino give up a game. Now, look, Adam Adovino's got a very important role on this team. I can't dismiss that. He's probably their second or third best reliever, uh, depending on how you want to rank it. You want to argue Brooks Rally? Okay, I guess. You want to argue, I guess, lately Dominic Leone, sure. <laughs> but I want my best pitcher facing their best hitters. That's my argument. And if you want to whip out Robertson for two innings if you're Buck, fine. Okay, it's a big game. I'm with you on that. You want to go for the jugular. You're not worried about Monday in Houston because God knows you ain't having a lead in any of these games. Let's face it. The brooms are already out in Texas. So if you want him for two innings, I'm, I'm good with it. For him to pitch one inning and then go to Adam Adovino, who is so unreliable up and down this season, I thought was, here's the word I'll use, Hoff, a horrendous move by Buck Walter. Horrendous. I don't like it. I hate it. I want my best reliever facing their best hitters. And we all know the result. Nolan Arenado at a home run. And the Mets lose. Are you with me on this monstrosity of a move by Buck, or you want to argue? Uh, zero
2: argument. But the only thing I will argue a little bit is it didn't make a difference if Robertson pitched the 8th and ninth. <laughs> the Mets were doomed to lose this game. I'm sorry. You never feel comfortable. You never go, oh, this is this is where it's going to happen. Even when the Mets walked off the Yankees, it still never felt like, oh, this is their moment. It, it doesn't feel right anymore. It really doesn't.
1: Yeah, I, I never felt confident in this game. I agree with you. And if they get through the ninth inning, they don't score in the ninth, it goes to 10. I, I'm not saying they win. So I, I can't tell you my confidence flips. But I got to extend the game. That's the way. I, I have to extend the game because – you never know. I don't know what the hell's going to happen in the 9th, 10th, or 11th inning. I have no idea. But I don't like losing by not using my best, especially against their best. The, the Mets didn't lose the finale of this series on a fluky home run by you know Dylan Carlson. They lost it because their best player hit a home run. And it, it bothers me that their best player hit a home run off of a guy who's not our best player. But, but again, it is finding ways to lose because this met offense did show a lot of fight. This met offense did come back from two, nothing down to make it two to one from five to one down to make it five to four from six, four down to make it six, five from seven, five down to make it seven, seven, like all of that happened in the first five innings. But from the sixth inning on the offense did nothing. They couldn't back up the fact that the bullpen actually settled in and kept this game close. And it's just another sign that they're bad and they find ways to lose. So the the move of Robertson in the eighth, not pitching a second inning or just having out in the eighth, Robertson in the ninth is worthy of me bitching about. And I think worthy of all of us complaining about, but you're right. It doesn't mean they win. They probably lose anyway, because this is what this team does.
0: This episode is brought to you by progressive insurance.
1: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562 314 4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, When I was driving to the ballpark, I found out that Pete Alonso was in the lineup. And I was stunned because I think all of us just assumed okay, you know, Pete's on the IL. Uh, maybe it's another couple of days, maybe it's another week. But to see him come back activated off the injured list right in the starting lineup, was a shot in the arm. It felt good. He didn't back it up. He had a rough day at the plate. I'd say slightly rough day defensively because I thought on the Escobar error, Alonzo had a chance to make a nifty play where he catches the high throw and keeps his foot on the bag. Not an easy play. It's a tough play. But it was not a great day by Pete. He was 0 for 4 or 3 strikeouts. But great to have him back. I mean, the fact that he only ended up missing, I think it was 8 games, he was on the injured list for one day after the minimum like I think his first day for activation actually would have been yesterday or Saturday depending on when you're listening so getting Pete back was great Tommy Pham continues to be awesome I have no complaints with Buck running him out there every day I know he's a veteran but he's hitting he deserves to be out there he hits the ball hard every time he hit that big two run home run Uh, Brett Beatty not playing is starting to get a little bit annoying because Couple of things about Beatty and Beatty mostly plays. So when we talk about the lineup, and yeah, we'll get the Volga back in a second, but Brett Beatty has been as good against lefties, if not slightly better, than he's been against righties. So I don't think you have to look at a matchup like Matthew Liberator and say, I can't play Brett Beatty. I get that you want to play Escobar. I think the simple solution to that sometimes is Escobar plays second, McNeil plays the outfield, and then you're sitting. Probably Marcana, I'd say DH, but right now Tommy Pham should DH. I got no complaint with that. But Brett Beatty, especially because he's been reasonably hot over the last couple of days, him not being in the lineup actually bothered me more on Sunday than it has in other games he's missed. Remember, he sat one of the games against Pittsburgh. He sat one of the games against Toronto a couple of weeks ago. sat one of the games against Philadelphia. And for the most part, I've understood it. For whatever reason, this one on Sunday bothered me because he's hot. Like, I go back to Friday's game. He bailed out Lindor. On Friday night, the Mets had the bases loaded and nobody out in the bottom of the first inning. And Lindor hit into the worst double play you can hit into, obviously, a one-two-three double play. And the Mets had a chance to really have that first inning be a kick to the stomach. Bases loaded, nobody out. Your four, five, six hitters are coming up, and you can't score. And Beatty bailed Lindor out with that huge two-run hit. And he got on base three times that night. And he's been relatively productive. So I see that lineup, and the first thing that jumps out at me is, "Eh, Beatty, we got to sit him again. Do we have to? Tommy Pham playing fine. I want Beatty out there as often as humanly possible. I see Alonzo's activated not surprised, they send down Mark Vientos. The New York Mets have managed Mark Vientos since his recall a few weeks ago as if they want him to fail. They do. That's the way they've managed him. We went through this a week ago. A a great email was sent in breaking down Vientos gets two hits, he sets. Vientos does this, he sets. I'll give this one to you because it was funny when I said it to my dad, not realizing it would be the truth. Game two of the Subway Series, Mark Vientos starts against Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole is, for my money, top five. I mean, he's the top five pitcher in baseball. Maybe he's the best pitcher in baseball. You want to argue it's uh, McClanahan, great. Framber Valdez, fine. Shohei Ota, whatever. Garrett Cole's an elite-level starting pitcher. Garrett Cole was dominating the Mets for the first four innings. Started to look a little human in the fifth and sixth. Mark Vientos in the sixth inning hit a ball 112 miles per hour off of Garrett Cole for a single right up the middle. They call that exit velo, by the way, if you haven't heard that, that term. Mark Vientos singles against Garrett Cole. I turned to my dad and I said, well, there you go. He'll sit the next three games. Well, here's what happened. Mark Vientos would sit on Friday, so I was right. He would sit on Saturday, I was right. And then on Sunday, they would send his ass to A. Here's the truth, though. If they're going to manage him like this, he should be in AAA. Because they don't play him. And Buck Showalter... With his uh, And his sense of humor is just not funny. I think we all have to admit it. Maybe last year we chuckled. Now it's just obnoxious. And and maybe he wasn't joking when he said this. He said, quote, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. Billy Martin told me a long time ago, you can't mess up the good ones. But Buck Showalter will sure as hell try. Because he's done everything to try to mess up Mark Fientos. Uh, And that's... For anyone out there that still wants Buck fired, I say still, and there's more of you today than there was three days ago, your argument talking about his handling of Vientos is probably Exhibit A because there's no defense of it. You know, when there are managerial moves, bullpen usage like we talked about earlier, we can do it with every manager in baseball. So it's tough to fire a manager When you're talking about individual moves, there are other things that kind of lead you there. I've talked about losing a locker room. I don't know where this locker room is. Oh, they keep battling. They just lost two out of three at home to St. Louis. But your handling of Mark Vientos was a fireable offense. And it's not Billy Epler. It's not coming down from the heavens. It's the manager. I make this very, very clear. It's the manager who makes the lineup. And the handling of Mark Vientos since his recall has been an absolute travesty. So he's going to go to AAA. How did he do in his first game in AAA? Does anybody know? I should look it up. I should see how he did. I wonder how Mark Vientos did in his first day at AAA. Oh, cool. I've got the box score right in front of me. Let me see what we got here. Mark Vientos. Ah, crap. He hasn't played yet. <laughs> I thought I had something big. But when he does play. He's going to go five for five. Can you do me a <laughs> favor? Can you check out uh, Mauricio? he oh, did it, it sucks because I don't believe Mark Vientos has been sent down because he failed. And you could look at the numbers and say, but Evan, you know, he hit 185, whatever the numbers were. I, I get that. Like he didn't dominate with his opportunity. I just think he was given like this weird tough to succeed opportunity. When you do something well, when you hit a game-tying home run in your first game up, to not be in the lineup the next day cannot help you. Now, there are guys who get called up. I remember when Mike Jacobs was called up. Mike Jacobs, years ago, was called up, and he hit a home run in his first game, and he was supposed to go right back down. Then he hit another home run, and then Pedro Martinez said, you can't send this guy down. Mike Jacobs forced the issue, and he deserves credit for that. I'm not arguing that Mark Vientos forced the issue. He didn't. He had some moments, but you need opportunity as a young player, and he never got it. And I think Buck Showalter, when he says, oh, don't worry, he'll be back, I'm not sure of that because barring injuries, there's no guarantee he's going to come back. There's no guarantee if he does come back, he's ever going to get that full opportunity so we can find out what he is. Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez are now getting the full opportunity. I may complain about Beatty not being in the lineup on Sunday. We may complain about Alvarez should have played on Friday. And, and all that is fair, but they're playing, and they're getting a full opportunity for the most part. Mark Vientos never got that, and now he's back in AAA. As far as Vogelbach is concerned, they gave him a mental break, whatever. They let him work on his mechanics, whatever. He comes back on Friday and hits a home run. Okay, cool. Mets were up five to one. I don't want to take anything away from the home run because they were up five to one. He pimp slapped it like he, it was a game winner. and good for him. He's letting out emotion. The man has struggled. I mean, he did celebrate like it was you know I just tied the game in the bottom of the eighth now. You're up five to one, but good for him. <laughs> I mean it. Good for him. He had a home run, and he's looked better, but why was Daniel Vogel back? Why has Daniel Vogelback been given every opportunity to make it work and yet Mark Vientos hits a ball 112 miles an hour over Garrett Cole's head and he has to sit the next two days and get, and get option? It just felt so unfair. And why? Because Daniel Vogelback makes a million and a half because Daniel Vogelback has the reputation that he has, which was as a solid guy who mashes righties, I admit that. But every single opportunity to get back on the horse and Mark Vientos, they couldn't wait to just send down. Couldn't wait to just move on from him. So I let out the frustrations on that. As far as game two is concerned, I I, honestly just watching that from the dugout of the uh, softball game. All I know is that Nimmo hits the first pitch home run. I'm in the car. I'm feeling good. Sanga gives it back and struggles in that second and third inning puts them in a hole at four to one and the offense just can't climb out of it they had a few opportunities specifically that chance in the seventh with first and third and McNeil hits the ball right back up the middle the Cardinals are positioned perfectly and they come up short the Friday game was the feel-good game the Friday game was the hey wait a second Tyler McGill looks tremendous game and I'll tell you a funny story about that Friday so Friday night which I think it's most Friday nights for me. I started the game way late on DVR, way, way late on DVR. I have that tidbit that the Mets gave us, season ticket holders. I explained this a few episodes ago, many episodes ago. It's like a cute little scoreboard they gave you. And you could put the weather up there, baseball scores, whatnot. So my tidbit is in my kitchen, and it has the Mets score. So I unplug it because I know I'm DVRing the game on Friday night. I don't want the Mets score up there. So I'm hanging out Friday with my wife, a couple of her friends. Jet is there. My youngest son, Spence, is crying. He's sort of there. And all of a sudden, Jet comes up to me and says, do you know the Mets score? And I said, no, you know I'm DVRing the game. And he said, well, I do. (laughs) And I'm like, what? Because he plugged in this stupid tidbit that I unplugged and saw the score. So now I, I sort of freak out on my son. Don't say, Jet, yeah, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Like, I've perfected the DVR game. What I've not perfected is the six-year-old plugging in the tidbit to see the score of the mech game and then taunt dad about how he knows the score. At that point, what a clutch move by Abuela. Abuela says, Jet, why don't you come downstairs? Let's play a game. Jet's gone. Like, he's taken away from the scene of the crime. So either way, enjoy the rest of the night. It's 11 o'clock, some, somewhere around there. I sit down and watch the game. And my wife gets a text message from my mom. And I said, oh, what, what, why'd my mom text you? My wife's like, oh, I, you know, I, I can't talk about it. Very, very quickly, ah, I can't talk about it. Now, logically, you would think, well, maybe it's because my birthday's coming up. Makes sense, I'm turning 40. My mom, my wife, maybe they're planning something. But, Pete, that's not where my brain goes. My brain now goes to, why would my mom text my wife? And then my wife say, I can't talk about it. It's Mets related. Then I'm thinking, but my mom doesn't care about baseball. And neither does my wife. And I realize there's only one thing that would cause my mom to text my wife. And that would be, you may want to get your camera out. Mets are pitching a perfect game tonight. So I'm like, holy crap. Tyler McGill? Really? I know he was a part of the combined no hitter. So I start this game, Pete, thinking the Mets may pitch a perfect game tonight. Now, if you recall, one, two, three, first inning. <laughs> I'm like, holy crap. One, two, three, second inning. Six up, six down. Now my wife's like kind of sleeping. I'm like, well, Should I wake her up? He gives up that single to the young with one out in the third inning. And now my stomach drops like, okay, so it's not a perfect game. And then it started to hit me. It has nothing to do with the Mets, you dipshit. I'm talking to myself that way. Like, what do you, why would you think that that secret text message is about the? It ain't about the freaking Mets. It's about some dopey gift to probably get me for my 40th birthday. So yeah, I watched the first two innings, Pete, thinking that uh, Tyler McGill was going to throw a perfect game. <laughs> well, you were
2: the only one who thought that because I I, I we knew the the ball was going we knew that was going to end
1: very soon. I guess if he took it to the 4th or 5th, then I'd really have gotten nervous, but he did yeah. take it to the 3rd, which is fu- much further than normal. You know, I used to do the
2: howie Rose thing where it was like every game you would anticipate like when the first hit was like oh there goes the there goes the no-hitter there goes the perfect game and i don't have to do that anymore because we have two of them in the books but with this team i mean i don't think anybody's gonna have what's the furthest we've gone with a no-hitter so far this season oh my god do you god. know <laughs> it, what it a might question. be three it might be three innings. It might be three innings.
1: <laughs> you're right. You're right. And even a no-hitter or a perfect game ain't saving us. Like, I don't even think that would cause us to think differently about the season. But it was a good win Friday. I, I, I did enjoy that because it was a quick game. It was a two-hour game. So when I'm sitting there at 11 o'clock watching it on DVR, it flies even quicker. I mentioned the sequence that I thought was really important when Lindor bounces into the one two three double play. Here's the booze from the crowd. Beatty picks him up with the two-run double. Tommy Pham, who's been awesome. Let's hand it to him. He's, you know, of all the Mets that have had disappointing seasons, which is just the entire roster, Tommy Pham has probably been the guy, like the happy story of 2023. So
2: can I just say something? One thing that you and I talked about in the previews of the season was the DH and the catching situation has to get better. Right. And it actually has. Those are the two parts of the team that has gotten better, like if we talk about Tommy Pham, most of the time that that's he qualifies as that like extra bat that we were missing, I mean Francisco Alvarez has what twelve home runs yeah they've yeah. they've blown past what the d h and catcher production was all last year. Everyone else sucks
1: yeah i I was thinking about this uh as I was watching the Mets lose on Sunday. Why do they suck like a very simple diagnosis to. 101 wins to five games under 500. Why? And obviously there's a million reasons that we could go through and the podcast would take five hours, but I want to simplify it because you're right. The production at catcher has been far better than it was a year ago. The production at DH, I have to look closer at. I mean, they've got nothing from Daniel Vogelback when he's played Tommy Pham has been really productive recently. Some days he's DH, some days he's played left field. I like to consider him, though, with DH because his at-bats are usually coming at that expense. And, and yeah, Jeff McNeil has taken a huge step backwards. Starling Marte has taken a huge step backwards. Francisco Lindor has taken a huge step backwards. Alonzo still leads the world in home runs, but his season has not been overall as good as it was a year ago. But overall, it's not that. Like if I had to really die, it's not that. Because the Mets are scoring about four and a half runs a game. And while I'm not trying to tell you that's amazing, because it's not, but what it is, is it's average. Like that's a it's a very average figure. In fact, right now in Major League Baseball, if you take all 30 teams and you say, how many runs are being scored per game? Like what is the average, average amount? It's 4.55 runs. The Mets are slightly below that but they're right there. They're an average offensive team. They've got some really good days. They've got some really bad days. They suck because they don't pitch. And and yeah, there are days where they pitch and they don't hit and they lose. That's just being a bad team. But that's the difference. Carlos Carrasco last year was good. This year, he has a 680 ERA. Last year, Max Scherzer, when he pitched, was good. This year, He's been mostly down. He's had some good moments, but he's mostly been down. When you look at what Chris Bassett and Taiwan Walker did for the team last year and then compare it to their replacements, Kodai Senga's been okay, hasn't been as good as what Chris Bassett was last year. It's reasonably close. And then there's a huge drop-off with the fifth guy because the guy who was supposed to replace Tywan Walker is Jose Quintana. He hasn't picked up a ball, so now you're looking at Tyler McGill. And despite what he did Friday, there's been a huge drop-off then you throw in the bullpen which has not been nearly as good and it's the pitching like that's the reason why they've had this massive turnaround from really good to really bad but so let me ask you a question though is it last year's team
2: was bad but they played really good baseball or this year they're good
1: they're just playing really bad baseball oh no they're not they're not as good you've got guys having worse years you know, Starling Marte last year was an all-star. He was an all-star caliber player. This year, he's a bad player. Jeff McNeil won a batting title this, last year. This year, he's hitting the softest 275 in Major League Baseball. It, it, so it's, <laughs> dude, when you go from 101 wins to a team with a 460 win percentage, it's never going to just be one thing. That's why, yeah, it's not just the pitching. I just think it's the main culprit. But there's been a million things. Buck isn't managing as well. The team's finding ways to lose. Their defense isn't as good. Like, I mean, you add it all up. You add it all up. And here's where we are. And the math is getting worse. 12 and a half games out of first place. Five and a half games out of a wild card spot. The math is getting worse. As far as what's next, here's what's next. The Houston Astros. And that is a very, very scary proposition, despite the fact that the Astros are actually struggling. The Houston Astros just got swept by the red hot, you can't stop them, Cincinnati Reds. The Houston Astros have dropped to 39 and 33. They've dropped into a four-game tailspin. Your Dan Alvarez is out. Michael Brantley has still not played a game yet for this season, despite all his, he's almost back. He's on a rehab assignment. Boom, there's a setback. So the good news is the Mets are going to play a team that is struggling. The bad news is they were just playing a team that was struggling and they lost two out of three. And I've got some more bad news. The Mets are going to Houston. They're throwing Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander in game one and two. Seems great on paper. Except what have I told you the Astros have the starting pitching edge in both games? They do. Because in game one, Hunter Brown is pitching. Hunter Brown has had a far better year than Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer has sucked. <laughs> that's just cold like it is. In game two, Justin Verlander, who has been up and down, up and down, is taking on, in my opinion, I mentioned his name earlier in the pod when talking about who's the best pitcher in baseball. Garrett Cole's in the discussion. McClanahan's in the discussion. For my money, it may be Framber Valdez. And that's who they face in game two. So the Mets are going to be looking at a starting pitching disadvantage when they've got the $90 million men on the mound. And then in the finale, Chris John Javier against Tyler McGill, despite McGill on Friday, feels like McNeely against Tyson. So we're going to Houston. Raise your hand if you think this is the series that turns this season around. It's just, it's going to get worse.
2: I'm. I'm, here's the thing, though, and I'm going to just – I've said this before because a lot of people – and I'm pissed because they were supposed to be – it was supposed to be versus the Cardinals. This is where it's supposed to start. The Mets are not going to go on this magical 25-game winning streak and take over the division. We know that. The Mets aren't going to go on a 10-game winning streak. Mm. What they can start doing is just win freaking series all you need if they do that they'll get back in the mix they will get back into a wild card race they'll get back into you know over 500 baseball it's not that difficult two out of three you have to do the rest of the way but they have to start doing it now
1: yeah when are they going to do it they haven't won a series on the road since la (laughs) They, they haven't they have been And they just got
2: smoked, dude. They just got the shit beat out of them and freaking by the, the Giants.
1: But you know what? The Dodgers are struggling right now. You're right. The Astros are struggling, like I mentioned. But both of those teams had gotten off to good enough starts where as of today, as of Monday morning, the Dodgers and the Astros are right on that wild card line in Major League Baseball. They're right there. So that's the beauty of it. You can struggle and not bury yourself. Even the Yankees are in that spot. Like the Yankees have been a freaking mess since Aaron Judge got hurt. They're on a four-game losing streak. They got swept by the Red Sox. They're right there on the wild card line. The Mets are five and a half games back. They haven't had a good stretch. Like their only good stretch. And I'm sorry, I can't even include the homestand against Tampa in Cleveland. It was so brief. It was so brief. I can't even count it as a winning stretch. It was a nice couple of days where we thought they were back naively, but their really only winning stretch was earlier in the season, and even then they weren't winning that many games. Now, let me read some of your uh, pissed off emails because we haven't done that in a few days. We did a couple of drive homes with the Yankee series, and by the way, I do apologize. I know we still haven't done the podcast on the could have been off season one. Uh, we will definitely do it this week coming up. There were some distractions last week. I don't know if you heard so. I was tired. I apologize. I'm sorry. Let me start off with Charlie. Charlie writes, this team confuses me. This might be rock bottom and it sucks, but as long as the kids make movement this year, I don't feel like the world is ending. Anyway, I was at the game on Friday night and I couldn't believe the amount of upset size I heard when Tyler McGill gave up his first hit. (laughs) I overheard multiple people say, there goes the no hitter. The team can't get a pitcher through the sixth inning. Did we really think Tyler McGill was going to no-hit the Cardinals? I did, but that's only because of a weird text message. Another thing I noticed during Saturday's game, Kodai Senga does not look towards the strikes on until the very last second before releasing the ball. I know the ghost fork drops early, but he was wilder than usual on Saturday. Do you think he'd benefit from keeping his eye on the catcher through that stretch? I don't think so. I think that's probably something Senga's always done. So I don't think that affects necessarily anything that he's throwing. But look, the ghost fork was not effective on Saturday. It's a part of why he gave up multiple home runs uh, because when that ghost fork is not over for a strike, that's when he has to settle by throwing fastballs down the middle and they get pounds sometimes. Last question, we owe Starling Marte a lot of money. Is it too much money to consider a trade while he's hot? I just don't think he's the guy. So here's the issue, and this is going to become a common thread if the Mets don't turn this season around. There's going to start to be talk and there's a bunch of it in the email already, about selling guys off. About, hey, we should be sellers. We shouldn't do anything stupid. We, we shouldn't be buyers. We should be sellers. The Mets have a huge payroll. And along with having a huge payroll, is having a lot of guys who make a ton of money. There are not a lot of teams in baseball that are going to take on those contracts. So even if Marte was having a good year, I don't know how many suitors would be lining up for the back end of his contract. Uh, Marte getting hot is not going to change that. He is a contract right now that, to me, has no value. You'd have to pay off part of that deal, which I would not be up for. And I think there's going to be a lot of guys like that. So when you hear this knee-jerk, the Mets suck, let's just trade everybody. Trade Verlander. First of all, Verlander is going to have a full-no trade, same with Scherzer. And nobody's going to want them. Because even if they were good, even if they were pitching well, how many teams in baseball, like the Cincinnati Reds are in a race and they have so many good young position players. It's really exciting what's happening in Cincinnati. Let's say the Reds said, you know what, F it, let's just go for it. Let's go get an ace. Would they pay $45 million a year prorated and then another year for Justin Verlander? No. So even a team that's looking at the racing, we have a shot. They're not paying that kind of money. So I know we're going to get a lot of emails about that, but let's be honest. Not a lot of guys with value on this team.
2: Can I ask you a question? Because and this is a bigger picture thing, and I I hate to always go back to to big picture stuff. But Max Scherzer, right, has a terrible season the rest of the way. He's not going to opt out of his contract, clearly even though I think he should. I think he should respect the fact that he sucks and we don't need him anymore. Stop. But if he if it's terrible, if he's terrible, if right. he pitches to a four, five year, whatever the hell it is,
1: we're going to suck it up and have him pitch all season next year for us? Yeah. Well, I, well yeah, in that he's going to opt in. Uh, I don't think Max Scherzer is some kind of weird human. Who's going to say, I suck? I owe it to the Mets. I'm going to opt. He's not going to do that. Nobody would do that. Nobody would do that in the NBA. Nobody would do that in Major League Baseball. It's why you put those opt in or opt outs in for that
2: reason. And I I get that. But, and this is why it's a big picture situation. So I'm not going to get too deep into it. You're already talking about your 43 or 45 million in the hole with a guy who you can't even trust anymore. That's not a good sign
1: to start twenty twenty four. Well, they're going to be stuck with both guys. <laughs> I mean, they are. They are. Let's go, Mets, and let's go, Billy Epler, fired. But but, but here's the difference. Here's why that thought doesn't scare me. Why that thought doesn't freak me out? Because if the owner is still committed, and he has been to spending, and says, "Look, I'm just going to spend our way with these." short-term free agent deals until we figure things out farm system wise then that may not stop him from signing a big arm and if max Scherzer's is making 45 million dollars but you're viewing him more as a third or fourth starter it's a lot different than the way we view him now which is a guy who needs to be an ace listen and i i don't i still believe in this team because i really
2: don't want to shave my head but if they miss the playoffs and their payroll is by far the worst team money can buy. Let's be yeah. serious. That They're going to take over. Yeah. You Next year, they're going to be over $400 million. Maybe. I I mean, yeah, that, so? that to me is out.
1: Do you trust Billy? Uh, first, I mean, whatever. No, fair, no, no, Billy no, no. Epler is not going to be here. Can we just all cut hey, the crap the, with this? The, Billy Epler is not. If Billy Epler is here, he's going to be here the way. Um, oh, my God. The name has already plopped out of my head. Scott Perry. Okay, remember Scott Perry, the GM of the New York Knicks? Knicks, You know when Leon Rose took over, Scott Perry remained the GM of the Knicks? Except, what the hell was he doing? It was Leon Rose's show. Let's just get this out in the open. David Stearns is going to run the New York Mets next year. It's going to happen. It's a lock of a century. Do I say it with knowledge? I'd say I say it with an educated guess, all right? David Stearns is going to run the New York Mets. Does he retain Billy Epler? Maybe. It's not going to matter. Because no one's going to think of Billy Epler as the guy making day-to-day decisions. It's going to be David Stearns. So let's all calm down about that. That's what's going to happen next year. And by the way, that was probably going to happen no matter what. (laughs) The Mets could win 90 games and David Stearns was still going to run this team. Steve Cohen's had a boner for him for the last two years. He loves the guy. So that's going to happen. But again, if the owner, and I believe him, I have no reason not to, is going to continue to spend, then yeah, there'll be $150 million locked into the starting rotation next year. Like seriously, if he went out and signed Shohei Otani and Julio Urias, I'm not even kidding. And I know Urias is on the injured list right now, but real good, real good pitcher who's been consistent over the last few years. I'm I'm not even kidding. Let's say he said, you know what? I'm making two moves during the offseason. Canna's numbers are off the books. Escobar's numbers are off the books. And quite frankly, I don't even need to replace him because I got young position players. I'm good. I'm going to stick with my, the position players I have. And the only expenditure is Otani and Urias. By the way, none of this is unrealistic. And Max Scherzer opts in. Max Scherzer's the effing fourth starter. You're not going to give a rat's ass about the fact that he opted in on $45 million. We may still attack him. People who are just uncouth may call him pieces of craps or something like that. But if they're going to spend anyway, and I've got no reason to think they're not, then whatever that he's on the team. Do you remember? I just want
2: to, I need to tell everyone the audience this. Because before the offseason really started, I told you what the Mets had to do, and you go, dude, that payroll should be over $300 million. I said, yes, it probably should be. And we're talking about a, a payroll that next year may
1: be over $400 million. Do you, do, do you think, Pete, and I ask this to the entire audience, we don't know much about Steve Cohn. We're learning. Now we're learning that he only tweets when good things happen. We've learned that he's not quick to fire a manager. No, he hasn't shown any sign of doing that with Buck in 2023. But do you think? that Steve Cohen, if this team loses 90 games, has the worst team money could buy feel to it. Do you think his response is going to be, F you guys, I'm not spending? Is it going to be, I'm going to keep things the same, or is it, I'm just going to spend even more? Like Of those three options, what do you think Cohen's response to this uh, monstrosity of a season would be? I I don't know, because I, I
2: agree, he'll probably spend money. But on the other hand, too, I'm scratching my head going, I just put in almost, you know, over $350 million into this team, and we were worse by far than we were last year when we won 101 games. What the hell did we do wrong here? A lot of things, <laughs> apparently.
1: <laughs> uh, let me get to some more of these emails. Alberto writes, losing a series to the worst team in the National League record-wise just really cements the fact That we're not a great team this year and we shouldn't do anything crazy like trading away prospects for a reliever or a piece that doesn't put us any closer to a World Series win than we are right now. Listening to Bach just say over and over that he's happy with how much fight the team has and always trying to spin things as positive when there isn't anything positive about losing a series like this is straight up annoying at this point. Why we used Robertson in the eighth against the bottom of the order and not let him go back out for the ninth after throwing less than 10 pitches makes me feel like Buck must know that he won't get fired because the moves just make no sense at all. Even now, he says, quote, he pitched to the people he needed to. It just grinds my gears. I'm not sure what the answer is to this mediocre or below mediocre team at this point, but it feels like we be, we should be looking towards the offseason where we can address our starting pitching problems with – Aaron the Japanese stud Yamamoto, and even people like Julio Urias, and of course, Shohei Otani. Looking forward to the Ricos now more than the games themselves. Happy Father's Day. Sorry the Mets couldn't come through on your day. On our day. At least a lot of us who are fathers. Uh, I don't think the Mets are going to do anything at the deadline, would be my guess. If I had to sit here right now, and we're not that far away from it, because it's a month away, so, sure, the Mets could go out and win 18 out of 20 in that time span. But as of right now, like I mentioned earlier, there's not going to be that much to sell. And I don't think that they're going to operate and Billy is going to operate as a GM whose time bomb is ticking where, oh, my God, I have to win some games or they're going to fire me. I'm not sure that's going to happen. David Ramos writes, so I've come to the realization that the season is done. <laughs> haven't we all to a degree the worst thing we can do is trade prospects for middle of the road aging relievers what if we do the opposite david robertson can bring us something back and we can sign him as a free agent again next year see that's smart thinking because of all the guys on this roster who would have value at the trade deadline? The guy with the most would actually be David Robertson. I think it's a spot-on analysis. Not necessarily that they're going to re-sign him at the end of the year. Who knows? You know, we saw the Yankees do it with Aroldis Chabin brilliantly a few years ago. But Robertson's had a great year. He doesn't make a lot of money. He's a reliever. Yeah. No doubt about it. Vincent Caprito writes, terrible. I'll keep this short and sweet. I think we need to reconsider our ability to beat bad teams when we just might be the worser team. That's a good point. <laughs> you know, you watch the Cardinals, and we watched them a little bit over the weekend. They obviously have guys in their lineup that are excellent, excellent players. You know, Brendan Donovan, not really. Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado, sure. Nolan Gorman's had a tremendous year. We can't doubt him. So they've got guys in their lineup. Their rotation. right now, it may be better than the Mets. I hate to say it, like, Miles Michaelis isn't amazing. Adam Wainwright's got a tad bit left. Jack Flaherty's not very good. Jordan Montgomery hasn't been as good as he was last year. But you know what? Is that rotation that much worse than what the Mets are? Like, it's true. The Mets are one of those, quote, worser teams. Can I just say something? Um, I
2: just want to say sayonara to Adam Wainwright. We never have to face you at City Field ever again. Thank God.
1: Yeah. It's over. And he's he's going to be our first uh, Go F Yourself guest on a new segment that we'll have during the <laughs> offseason where we bring on guys we hate. And uh, we'll call it Go F Yourself. I think he should be the first one. He will. Listen, let's be I just,
2: I, I would like to be transparent to the audience because we did try to bring him on before the season started. And they said he'd love to come on, but he wants to be focused for his final season. He doesn't want anything to ruin it which I think he really wanted to come to Citi Field that last time and not give an edge to the Mets in any way. Didn't want to say anything wrong.
1: And he effed us one last time. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he did. (laughs) Of course he did. Darren Cohen writes, and this is good, because this was in the middle of the Met game. I, I love this, and we've had a lot of people do this on the Rico, where they'll email as something happens in the middle of the Met game. So thank you, Darren Cohen, for doing it. Darren writes, I don't know how this game ends. But Adovino just gave up a home run in the ninth. Seconds before I told my friend, I thought I was taking crazy pills because Buck used Robertson in the eighth when the meat of the order was coming up in the ninth. Is he trying to get fired? Is he trying to give us the middle finger? Or is he trying to give people in the organization a middle finger with this type of thing? Also, someone tell Jeff McNeil it's okay to drive the ball. And the idea of trying to improve your batting average 10 points versus hitting 15 more doubles is not a win especially the case when you're not improving your average. Uh, Yeah, the Mets did not win the game, nor did they show fight. Can someone tell uh, Buck Showalter that? Like, where the hell was that fight? A bloop single in the ninth inning by Brandon Nimmo down by a run and then Starling Marte grounding into the easiest double play in the history of baseball? That's not exactly showing fight that Buck was uh, waxing poetic about. This, by the way, what was this guy's name that just emailed you? Uh, Darren. Darren Cohen. (laughs)
2: Darren is not the first person that said this. Buck does seem like he's checked out slash looking to get fired. Is that something that you feel too? I know that we go back to, oh, last year he did the same thing, but it was cute then, and now it's not cute. But, I mean, honestly, every move he's making is
1: wrong. I think, no, I don't think he's checked out. I think that when things are really, really bad, we look at everything closer. And we almost have a negative eye towards everything that happens. And every move he makes doesn't work. A lot of moves are not based on anything smart to make it. Other moves are, and they just don't work. Like, there have been moves I've defended that Buck's made, and they just don't work. So I don't think he's checked out, but I will say this to those that want Buck fired. I am in a new place. I'm not in the place where I'm wanting him fired or I'm demanding him being fired. I'm in the place that if they fired him tomorrow, I would not be angry. That's where I'm at. I think a few weeks ago, if they fired him, it would be embarrassing. It would be Steinbrenner in the 80s-like. And I think my reaction to it on the Rico or on the fan would have been, this is bad, bad, bad. I think if on Monday morning, Steve Cohen went to Twitter, which he wouldn't do because he only talks positive on Twitter. I do have to check to see if he's tweeted anything in the last couple of days. And they announced, hey, we've decided to remove Buck Showalter from his job as manager. I wouldn't go applaud it. I wouldn't celebrate. I wouldn't say, yeah, we go. But I wouldn't I wouldn't bat an eye. I'd say, all right, I get it. They're 33 and 38. They suck. Every move doesn't work like we were just talking about. Fine. Try something different. Because I've also come to the realization, Pete, that not only will David Stearns, be running the New York Mets next year. We have to follow that a little bit. If the Mets are handing the keys to the organization, to David Stearns, who is a lifelong Met fan, who once told a friend of his, I will run the New York Mets someday. right? told his friend that. Now, when was that? I don't know. Maybe 10 years ago. Maybe in effing high school for all I know. But that was said. I just don't know the date of it. If he's going to run the New York Mets, don't you think he's going to pick his own manager? If we're we're just being logical, like he's going to pick his own. It wouldn't be right to say, here's your manager. Now, David Stearns could take over and say, I've always loved Buck from afar. He's not the problem. He's the manager. That's possible. But the more likelier thing is that next year on the Rico, we're all bitching or celebrating the moves made by Craig Council. That's probably the likeliest scenario of how this all goes. Uh, Why? You think I'm wrong about that? Craig Council out of everybody. I mean, listen. Because Mark he DeRose. managed the Brewers. It's just, it's just,
2: I, I, I know. I know. But I'm by the way, right now, do me a
1: favor. When does Craig Council's uh, contract run out as manager of the Milwaukee Brewers?
2: I'm assuming it's going to be this year. Unless it's an, opt contra- is it an opt-in.
1: Final year of his deal is this year, no extension. So it's all going down. Craig Council managed. David Stearns will be the GM. And uh, I don't know if we'll be happy. I'm just saying that's what's going to happen.
2: You're going to get Carlos Beltran up for a up for bid and Martha Rosa. Those are the three finalists for next year as the coach of the uh, New York Mets.
1: The manager of the New York Mets. It's not the coach yeah, of the New York. Mets. No, don't make I'm that so, mistake. So, so. I know. Sorry. <laughs> and by the way, we have absolutely no history with Craig Council. Craig Council is one of those guys where. You know, we remember him from his playing days. You know, we all remember that with the Marlins. His in awkward stance. Yeah, yeah he he, he, sw- he looks awkward when he swings the bat. The awkward batting stance and all that. And he's been, you know, a reasonably good manager for the Brewers. They had that one year where they got to the LCS in 2018. You know, he's a, a above 500 manager. They haven't had bad seasons though. They've been a disappointment the last two years. Let's face it. I thought they were a massive disappointment a year ago when they handed a playoff spot to Philadelphia. And obviously this year they're hovering around 500 in a division that no one wants to take. Maybe the Reds will eventually take it. But just follow the bouncing ball here. If David Stearns is running the New York Mets, he's g- going to pick his own manager. And that's the way it is. Could I have one wish that the Milwaukee Brewers,
2: and Stearns is still somewhat involved with the Brewers, right? Yeah,
1: he's a consultant, correct.
2: Great, great. This is beautiful. If David, if you're listening right now, consult with your team if the Brewers are out of it, make a trade with the Mets. Not for this year. No, no, no. no. But Devin Williams to the Mets. Corbin Burns to
1: the Mets. Yeah, just send say those say guys over. Them.
2: <laughs> send them both. Let's go. <laughs> send them over.
1: All right. And finally, Deborah writes, love listening to you guys. Was thinking since Lindor is doing so much better as a right-hand hitter, maybe he should stay as a right-hand hitter, abandon the shift for a while. What do you think? There are, throughout the history of Major League Baseball, a lot of switch hitters who are in a given season, because in Lindor's case, this is really a given season. If you look at his splits from a year ago, he was productive as a lefty. He was productive as a righty. There are years in which switch hitters just have massive disparities between one side and the other. And for the most part, they never give up hitting from one side. So I totally get what you're saying, Deborah. Lindor as a righty is a completely different hitter than Lindor as a lefty. But guys just don't do that, especially when they're in the midst of a long career. They just don't give up on one side. But obviously what you're witnessing and what we're all witnessing is incredibly frustrating because what's unfortunate with Lindor is the side he's effective on is the side he rarely hits from. Because even when the Mets are facing a lot of lefties, and they will face one lefty when they go to Houston, just like they faced one lefty when they played St. Louis, you're still facing a hell of a a lot more righties than you are lefties. So Lindor's just got to figure it out. So I don't think he will do it. It's rare that guys ever give up hitting from one side, but obviously we're all noticing the same thing as Deborah pointed out. He has been a horrendous left-hand hitter, and he's been much more dangerous as a righty, including hitting the home run on Sunday in his first at-bat after becoming a dad again. Congrats to him about that. Uh, hopefully the Mets can turn this season around, but our hope is all dwindling. We appreciate you listening. We'll definitely do a pod after the series ends, like we always do against Houston. And I do promise at some point this week we will finally get to the pod on the could have been offseason off season edition of Rico Bronya. We appreciate you listening and downloading. You can email us anytime, as we're even noticing in the midst of games at the Rico B at Gmail.com. The Rico B at Gmail.com for listening to Rico Bronia.